Hey team of Eternal Optimists, it's Matt Rincon here. And before we launch into today's epic conversation, I've got a big announcement. Drum roll, please. My brand new book is coming out on March 8th. And perhaps even better news, you can get it for only 99 cents on Amazon that day. We don't run ads on the show. And if you ever want to give back and support the Eternal Optimist community, go to Amazon on March 8th and get the Kindle version for only 99 cents. Just search for the book title, The Eternal Optimist. It's never too late. And you can download it directly to your device. Now, let's get to the show. And team, I am excited to bring my new friend and someone who comes highly recommended by someone that I highly respect, Kostum Aslam, recommended me, one of my front row dad brethren that we've had you know, great deep conversations. He said that Mr. Greg Smith is a long-term friend and mentor. And to me, the red flags went up and said, I've got to meet him and I want to interview him. And perfect timing because a book just came out and we're going to put Greg here on the show and just put him out platform and let him just go because I've already talked to him for like five minutes and he's a genius. So we're going to put him out here and let him speak. So Greg, first of all, welcome to the show. How are you today, sir? I'm fantastic. I think if I was doing any better, I'd probably declare a dividend and we'd all get a check, Matt. <laughs> nice. Nice. Well, you say you're fantastic. So why fantastic? What makes today and right now fantastic for you, Greg? I think for me, every day is fantastic. I wake up every day with expectation and have found that just choosing to have a great day makes life a lot easier and a lot more interesting. So I live with expectation and great things to happen. And every day is like that for me. Fantastic. A true eternal optimist. Love it. Well, let's dive in the deep end then, shall we? We can go over all the business accomplishments and the success and the book covers that. And I'm sure that our audience will find that as we talk more. But let's go first into the deep end of something that's challenging. And you be the uh, grand painter here and help us paint the masterpiece. What is something in your career, Greg, that's been incredibly challenging and difficult for you that you can share with us today? We could cover both personal and business. Let me just touch on business I come to business with some credentials as a commercial bank lender and a commercial bank officer, and also as a public accountant with a CPA credential, but not much of either, really. I mean, I had five years in banking, two years in public accounting, and then I sought the opportunity to take my tools and take my skills and interests to leverage them into business with ultra high net worth private families. In terms of challenges, probably the same challenge kept repeating over and over where I would find myself in a situation with a business that was maybe in need of a turnaround, was maybe in a crisis. In one instance, which we talk about in, in the book, we acquired a company for a private family, an airline actually. And 61 days later, the founder and CEO of the company passed away unexpectedly of failed angioplast surgery. And he was a pilot himself. He had just flown a flight and come in a few hours later with chest pains. And there he was at his hospital run by members of his family. So you can imagine the trauma and uh, they were unable to save him. So I told the family this company had just been acquired. It was highly leveraged. It had purchase acquisition debt on the balance sheet that we would find the best aviation people that we could, we will write the ship and we will be fine. And they said, you know what? You've worked for us for 10 years. You're in the banking business, yes. but it's kind of like the airline business, if you think about it. So we transitioned and I ended up running that company. And the challenge, I think, as we went forward was we hit some difficult economic times. In order to save the company, 
and this was a few years after the acquisition, I had to make the decision to reduce staff. And this was a very difficult decision for me because when you reduce staff or have a workforce reduction, you're not dealing with just the employees, middle management, staff. You're dealing with their families, their children, their way of life, the sustainability of their recurring income from their paycheck. I had done this before in other situations, but being new to the airline industry, I certainly wasn't the most favored person to bring about a reduction in workforce. But I wasn't there for a popularity contest. I had to save the company. And this is a very interesting, and I don't recall if I covered this in the book, I brought 21 middle managers into the room on a Tuesday, into the boardroom, and I explained to them what we needed to do to save the company in what were then very challenging and economic times. And I said, guys and gals, seven of you will not be here at the end of the week out of 21 people. 14 will survive, and the 14 will have to work with their teams And we will take a 30% reduction in workforce all the way through the company. And we will take a 30% pay cut for everybody that stays. And I will take my pay to zero for as long as it takes until we fix the company. And we will hire everybody back. And that's our commitment. But we have to save the company. This is very interesting. I said, you pick or I'll pick. On Friday, we reconvened. 14 people showed up. Seven were gone. They decided themselves. That's true passion for people in middle management that could foresee the opportunity to save the company and have a hand in the decision-making to do it. They then went through their own teams. We set the example in the boardroom. They went through their own teams, and their own teams decided who needed to be in the reduction in workforce, and whoever stayed had the 30% pay cut. But this is the most interesting part. Within two years, we hired every single person back. We put in a profit-sharing plan that paid 25% of every pre-tax dollar into deferred compensation for the employees. That fund accumulated several tens of millions of dollars for these people. The union stepped in four, five, six times to try and vote union. The whole company was non-union. Pilots, flight attendants, mechanics, Teamsters, Alpha, none of them were able to get a positive vote. And we really took care of those people as we brought them back and saved the company. And the company has changed hands several times. And I've had the opportunity to be associated with it several times. I guess airlines are more like for like baseball teams. They're more like for trading than for keeping. But this airline has got a great history and a great legacy of what you can do when you work with people and you're compassionate. And I'll just say once again, we have to think past the employee and past the company and think about the kids, the spouses, the schools they go to, food on the breakfast table, and all the rest of it. I did the very same thing in a pipeline engineering company in Wyoming, where I shuttled in on a Thursday night. The two partners had a third partner who had absconded with millions of dollars of cash and left the bank hanging. He disappeared, basically. And here, too, we had to go through drastic measures to negotiate forbearance with the creditors and ultimately went back to the person that made off with the funds, found him and got him to scorch the funds that he took. And we ended up saving the company and it turned out to be just a great outcome. One of the best pipeline engineering companies in the country. (sighs) Wow. Well, coming out of the gates, hitting out strong here, Greg. What a fantastic story. And I read part of that in the first chapter. I normally wait till later to promote the book. But man, this is such a good story to to even just start on here. The name of the book, No Locked Doors. And I'd like to read to you the quote. In the first 50 pages, I found a quote that really connected with me. And 
the quote from, I believe these are your words in the beginning, it's the biggest lesson I learned and therefore the biggest message I have to share with you is treat challenges as opportunities and problems are simply possibilities in disguise. And can you talk a little bit about your philosophy around problems being possibilities in disguise, Greg? Sure. Matt, it's really a matter of perception. And either you get it or you don't. If you have problems, people tend to focus on, why do I have a problem? If we have problems, people focus on who caused the problem? How did the problem occur? Why did it happen to me? And at the end of the day, that's all somewhat irrelevant. The problem is there and you have to solve it. And in some cases, you have to own it. And it's awful hard to address an issue if there isn't an acknowledgement that it's there and that it actually needs to be addressed and it needs to be fixed. And too many people, I'm afraid, in our regular lives, whether it's a personal matter or a business matter, are fearful of making a mistake in solving the problem. They're fearful of the challenge that maybe they can't step up to the plate and get it done. But I have had some really difficult challenges in my life, in mostly in business, that I think a lot of people would have walked away from. In fact, people in some cases told me to walk away from. There is a point in time when you have to call it a day and take a hike. But one of our business mottos in our business practice, which is investment banking, is we never leave the table. I mean, we find all kinds of people in all kinds of situations, and they believe they're behaving normally, and, and they believe they're behaving in an expected sort of way. But then they let their emotions get in the way. They let their ego get in the way. They get confused. And meanwhile, for our clients, we just never leave the table. We stay right there. And I can't tell you how many times people have come back to the table to finish what we started, whether we were trying to solve a problem or sell a company or deal with a merger or deal with some crisis having to do with a business combination. A lot of this stuff is fixable. It just takes some patience. It takes, above everything else, Matt, being a good listener. We always focus on that as one of the real tools of the trade and tools of success is to be a good listener. Too many people are so taken with talking we learn a lot more if we're listeners than if we're talkers. And I think it was Dale Carnegie in his book, How to Win Friends and Influence People, I think published about 1934-35, whose premise is that the more you let people talk, the more they will trust you as a listener. It's like an affirmation. It's like they're talking to you, they're visiting with you, they're starting to trust you, you're being patient, you're being a good listener. Sometimes we get a lot of free due diligence on a company just by being good listeners before we ever sign a non-disclosure agreement. We're just listening. The guy that founded the company wants to talk about the company. He wants to talk about his invention. He wants to talk about his patent. Pretty soon he's talking about his profit margins. Pretty soon he's talking about the problem employees. Pretty soon he's talking about his descending sales margins. And all of a sudden he's talking about what he could do if he had the capital to fix his descending sales margins. And well, maybe that's when we come along and it's time to buy that company. Mm, fantastic. I wonder, was there a point when you chose intentionally to go in this career that you just fell in love with it and knew this is what you wanted to do? Yes. Early on in the 1980s, I made some observations in a business that uh, seemed to indicate the business was materially underperforming, even though the president and the board and the team were all regaling each other with tremendous success. 
And the company had been acquired by the family that I represented. I made an inspection of this company and I met with the president of the company and I explained to him that with a change in ownership, we really needed to get dialed in on maximizing the performance of the company. And he explained to me that he was the president of the company and the sign on his desk said so. And maybe I should take a hike. Well, maybe I should take a hike. I was 31 years old. I had been in the position for less than a year. And I had to trust, Matt, that the family that I represented who had made this investment in this particular company would find merit in my being straight up with the findings and the discoveries and not pull back and back me. So I wrote a report. I gave it to the president of this company. And I said, this is the report that's going to go to the owners of the company, the shareholders. And I'd like to talk to you about it. He threw it on the floor. That was that. I said, okay. And I gave the report in my normal routines to the family. And they read the report. And you know what? They stood behind me every step of the way. That company went through a reduction in workforce. It ended up becoming one of the highest performing banks in its vertical industry in the state and became very a tremendously successful company. Once I had support from the family that just because I was 31-year-old, eight months on the job, rookie, it didn't mean anything if I brought in valid, actionable information and was truthful about it. You know, you also have to be careful how you communicate things. I wanted to be sure that there was buy-in if there was an opportunity for buy-in. I mean, I could have just walked away and the company was doing fine. Everybody was happy, but they were a lot happier when they realized that the company could improve its financial performance by about 50 or 60%. And so was the shareholders that own the company. So that started to become kind of a recurring theme where I would go into a situation and find opportunities to improve it. And again, always thinking about the greater constituency, the vendors, the customers, not just the employees and the shareholders, but everybody that gets touched by that company, because they're all constituents of that company. If it does well, that rising tide rises all boats. What I'm hearing from my seat is I'm hearing that there are certain set of skills that you developed through this time and through the rest of your career, one of them being great active listener, able to pick up on details, able to view things from a 10,000 foot view from the perspective of all stakeholders. What are some of the key skills that you developed over time that we might learn from you now, learn more about in the book, Greg? Well, I think we'd have to talk about patience. Okay. Because uh, it's real easy to get fed up with people that are just handing you a no or they're negative or they're resisting change for the sake of resisting change. I believe our body is kind of like a vessel. We go through life, we can only hold so much water in our vessel. People like to dump all the negative stuff into the vessel. We have to keep our vessel full with positive affirmations and look on the bright side of things. And as I said earlier, really live our life with positive expectations. I do. When people drop the negative stuff into my vessel, I tend to just tip my vessel a little bit to the side and pour it out so that there's more room for the positive stuff. And at some point in time when people are negative and they're going through their own negative affirmations, sometimes it's just a journey too far to bring people along and bring about change. So I do believe patience is a key. Persistency is a key. If you have it and you're blessed with it, probably at an early age, self-esteem is a key. But we also have to be realists that common sense and rational behavior is defined by each individual person and how they measure it and how they gauge it. And I'm not going to be judgmental about where people see things. 
if we come to a situation and we're prepared for it, we've thought about it, and I've made plenty of mistakes not being prepared and meeting people from different cultures and different walks of life and not being prepared and learning what more I could have done to be prepared. It makes a big difference in respecting the person on the other side to have been prepared and know what's going to be meaningful and what's going to be helpful to get something done. You work from an advantage if you have prepared yourself and you're really ready for the conversation, ready for the negotiation, ready for the discussion. Even your clothing, Matt. I went out to a bank in one of the Western states. A transaction was about to occur. It was our first site for on-site due diligence. The buyer and the seller had basically worked out the deal. And I get dispatched to go out and really begin the due diligence before the closing, make sure everything was the way it should be. And it was a small town, very successful company, three-story building. I walked in, I asked for president of the company, Mr. So-and-so. This is a 110-year-old company. It's gone through many layers of management. It's maybe one of the oldest businesses in the county of this small Western state community. Think of it like a ski town. And they said, you just walked right by him. And I said, well, I, I just walked in off the street. Well, he's out on the street. The president of the company, yeah, he's on a ladder. And I'm in a suit and a tie and a briefcase and flown into town. This is the way we're normally conducting business. He's three stories up in the air hanging Christmas tree lights on the roof of the building. I said, are you Mr. So-and-so? He said, yeah, who wants to know? I said, well, I have an appointment with you. This is Greg Smith from Minneapolis. Well, he said, I'll be right down. He had a leather jacket, all the tools around his belt, long white hair with a ponytail, grabbed my necktie, pulled out a nine-inch Bowie knife, cut it off, and said, if you're going to be in my town, you're going to have to respect us. Don't be coming in here with a suit. It was just, I should have thought about it. I should have thought about wearing boots and jeans and coming in a little more relaxed and a little more respectful and not looking like a Philadelphia lawyer. So perception was very important at that point in time. We ended up becoming great friends, but I'll tell you what, it's a little bumpy starter on my neck there to begin with. <laughs> Man. Man, the stories just keep coming. Every learning opportunity along the way here just feels like you're ready and then you kind of skin your knee a little bit and then you get something thrown back in your face, some challenge, and you just continue to flow and move forward. Wow. Yeah, yeah. These have all been learning lessons and not everything works out, but what a blessing to have had those experiences and what a blessing to have them while managing and being involved with high net worth families. I mean, I didn't have to take a lot of financial risk. These families were making significant investments across different industries. I was moving between different verticals. Ultimately, all of those tools and all of those experiences in their businesses became some of the stepping stones for my own business, which I probably delayed by 25 or 30 years just because I was having so much fun getting involved with other private family offices, which is a whole nother sphere of business, what those are all about. But now we have our own practice and our own business. And one of our very first clients, this might be a story worth telling, was a highly leveraged real estate group that had multifamily, if you will, apartment buildings in one of the southwestern states, I was introduced to kind of the patriarch of the group who had personally guaranteed quite a bit of debt. And all of his partners and constituents also personally guaranteed the debt, but had left the scene. They filed bankruptcy or they put themselves in a receivership and they did what they could to protect them themselves against 
any replevant action by the bank on these properties because the economy had turned. There was vacancies. There was deferred maintenance on the buildings. They needed more credit to fix the buildings up and then adjust the rents and restabilize the properties. And the debt had moved from one bank that had failed to another bank that had failed to another bank that had failed and ultimately was sitting at a bank in Beverly Hills, California, just outside of Los Angeles. And this portfolio of loans, not just my client's loans, but the portfolio of loans itself, many hundreds of millions of dollars, was so poor that the FDIC had to step in and guarantee it in order to sell it. So to help this individual out and survive a personal guarantee and replevin and foreclosure of all of his assets, and I talked to him on the phone briefly, I said, why don't we just meet at the bank in Beverly Hills? We said, well, we can't do that. How, how are we going to get a meeting at the bank? And I said, well, I know something about banking. So trust me, we'll have a meeting at the bank. And this is my first client when I started my own first business after working all these years for these families. So I met this individual on the street. We walked up together. We had a conference room. We met with a lender. I had the FDIC there. General counsel for the bank showed up. We made a compromise proposal on how to handle the debt and how the loan could survive and how the property could survive and, and how with a little bit of credit, we could make some necessary improvements. And there was no need to foreclose. And in the event that we sold the building, we would have an equity stake for the bank and the FDIC. And we just negotiated terms because we just sat there and listened to what they thought was the problem. They thought that they had to come and step in because the payments had been missed. Well, that isn't always the best solution. And the FDIC is not always the best auctioneer of property, and they know it. So there was no auction. They gave us a discount on the note. We made the payments. We were able to sell the property and they were able to get a recovery on the sale. The guarantee was never called. All the other investors went away. My client actually made money on the deal. It took some time and some effort to do it, but we had to restart. We had to kind of rethread the needle. We needed to regauge the opportunity because the economy had changed so much. I had done the same thing with bank regulators back in the 1980s in the Midwest when interest rates were heading on up to 21 and three quarters percent. Matt, I don't know if you were around that. I don't think you were. 1981 was a real difficult time for bankers and borrowers and particularly for agriculture because so many of our prices of agricultural products are commodities and they're set up as fixed prices with government supports that if you have a, a significant increase in your costs and you're selling at a fixed price, your margin goes from positive to negative. And for highly leveraged farmers in the Midwest, having to pay 21 and three quarters percent interest, mm -hmm. that's a pretty mm -hmm. big bubble. A lot of banks were foreclosing on farmland. Well, great. Well, then what are you going to do with it when you own it? Sell it at a loss because no one could justify being in the farming business. I met with regulators in 1981, 1982, and I said, why don't you not foreclose on the banks, at least the banks I was managing at the time, that were heavily oriented towards agriculture, and let's just see if we can't survive. We'll reset the loans, we'll reset the table, we'll work with the farmers, interest rates will eventually come back down, commodity prices will eventually go up a little bit, there'll be an inflection point where we will just get there by natural osmosis, if you will, and we will survive another day. Shutting down banks is not the answer. They didn't shut down any of our agricultural banks. I kept the regulators informed every month with written reports, on-site visitations. Communication is everything when there's stress. If you're not communicating, everybody's going to assume that everything's just gone to hell. So we communicated routinely. The bank survived. The farmers survived. But it was a difficult time. I mean, bankers were under stress. Farmers were under stress. And 
Matt, I expect you're, I was kidding about whether you were around and you probably 77, baby, 77. <laughs> but yes. Yeah. Well, this was 1982. So just a few years after you were born. But bankers were going to their customers' farms, their friends, people that they go to church with on Sunday morning after church to just talk about the loan and talk about the cattle and talk about the crops. And they were met at the driveway with shotguns. And some farmers did some pretty horrible things. Stress manifests itself in a lot of different ways, even between friends. So we took the stress out. We jacked up the communication. We jacked up the reporting kept the regulators informed, posted. There were a lot of banks that didn't have to get closed because we were just good communicators and tried to stay ahead of it. I think what I'm feeling right now is that you are, well, you're doing really well communicating with me in great clarity and great detail about these values and about the specifics of the story. And I feel that from my experience at the age of 46 in business, my experience has been that communication is the thing that's lacking in a lot of these situations we might get into. And I feel like you're putting on a masterclass of communication right now and active listening and being able to be patient. And I'm curious, over the years, patience, you said, was one of the key skills or traits that you have developed. I wonder if when you could think back to a time when maybe you didn't have as much patience and where that was really tested. Because I know that for a lot of high achievers, patience is a challenge. So can you take us back to when maybe you weren't as patient and how that developed for you over the years, Greg? Yeah, I think we have a chapter in the book about this. When I was in college, and this is maybe under the heading TMI or too much information, but I was coming from a pretty good high school with great grades, enrolled in college, enrolled into the next level of language. I was studying a language that happened to be French, which is really neither here nor there, but I migrated from level three or four in high school to level four or five in college. And I thought, well, this is fine. I'll get my language requirement out of the way. And it was a disaster. The teacher would not speak English. She was French. She only talked French. She spoke French only. Everything in in writing was French. If you had a problem, you were going to have to address it in French. I was failing. I had never had an F before. I mean, I was an AB student. I was not the top of the class, but I was certainly in the top quartile. I was taking an accounting class. And that really wasn't going much better. And I let the failure of one drift into the other. And I started really questioning myself whether I should even be in college. What am I doing with these grades? I was trying to study. I was trying to focus. I was working part time. I was commuting from home. My ego, quite frankly, Matt, got in the way. My ego was telling me that I should be doing great, getting great grades. I really wasn't owning the problem. I wasn't owning the transition that I needed to make. And I probably felt a little bit entitled also coming out of a good school and having been a good student, someone that had had pretty good, respectable grades. I just kind of got myself washed into this 20-foot tidal wave, which doesn't seem like a big deal looking back on it right now. But as a 19-year-old student in college, paying your own way, no scholarship, trying to make your way through, it was a big deal at the time. So I had to put my ego in the box, accept that I needed to stand down from level five to level three or whatever it was, reset my expectations, and start setting my goals with much smaller steps. In other words, achievable goals. So I didn't give up on the accounting. I survived it. Interesting, later in my life, I've become a CPA, right? I mean, how did I pass the CPA exam? It's a two and a half day examination. You know, I kind of stuck to it, but I reset 
I found the reset button to reset my goals and my expectations. Maybe I needed to step down a level or two in the French class. Maybe I needed a tutor for accounting and financial. Maybe I shouldn't take the professor. So literally when he said debits to the window and credits to the wall, I didn't know what he meant by that. It was just uh, dry humor on his part. I took everything too literally. I think I was in shock. So I got myself out of shock. I owned the problem. I figured this has got to be fixable one way or another. I had to own the problem, but I couldn't solve it until I owned it. It was my problem and I had to solve it. And we should look for people to help us solve problems from time to time, but not until we own the problem. It's hard to look for a mentor or a coach or a guide if you don't own the problem in the first place. That's just laying it off on somebody else, which is kind of unethical in a way. You're kind of wasting somebody's time. You have to own it. I think back to the owner of the company, you walk in, it says president here, I make the decisions, throws the report on the floor. Doesn't seem like they were owning the problem you were presenting at least at that time. And you were patient communication, you were clear on it and eventually we turned it around. I appreciate you at the age of 19 being able to set ego aside and understand the concept of owning the problem because so many don't. So thank you for sharing that, Greg. Was there anything in the challenges that you've shared? Was there anything personal that may have been a challenge for you that we could address for a minute? I think it happened It happened a number of times where the challenge was, he's too young, he's too new, he's a rookie, I'm a 60-year-old senior executive in a major company, why is this kid even in the room? You know, sometimes you have to just take your place. So maybe rather than sit at the boardroom table, I would say, oh, okay, that's fine, I'll just sit over here by the windows in the row of chairs in the back and let's just see how this goes. I'm not going to let my ego fight somebody else's ego. If somebody's got a big ego and I can see their ego, you know, they might be a really great person behind that ego, but that ego may have been manifested from fear or stress, or maybe they didn't know, or maybe they already knew that the business was in trouble or they were overstaffed or they had too many people in this department or that department or the product needed to be repriced or they needed to revisit their profit margins. Maybe they knew those things, but they didn't want to, they didn't want to get called out on it. I'm not going to fight somebody's ego, and I'm not going to let my ego fight an ego. So we just let a little time go by and start trying to figure out what are the touch points? What are the people sensitive about? What does the person on the other side really care about? In the case of the Mr. President, get out of my office, this is really interesting. It happened to be a bank, and he was the bank president, and the bank had changed hands. But he wasn't always a banker. He was a butcher. And he owned the building, which was a grocery store. And the grocery store wasn't doing so good. And the town needed a bank. And he thought, well, I think I'll turn my building, my grocery store, once it's empty and we get all the shelves and racks and lights out of it, this would be a great location for a bank. And the guy studied banking and he became a banker. And he hired some people to help him run a bank. He put together a shareholder list. He put together investors. I mean, you have to give the guy credit. He was a butcher. He became a banker. But the people in the bank were his age group, his peer group, and many of them had been stock boys and cashiers in the grocery store. Now, I'm not saying they weren't good as bankers, but there were just too many of them. The work that could be done in the bank for the bank that size could have been done by probably 60% of the staff that he had if you had people that were trained, if there was follow-up, if there was accountability, if there was a little bit of work measurement. Let me say this about work measurement. And this is particularly important, I think, for anybody that owns a business. I got this from, it's in the book, a governor of one of our fine states. 
now deceased, but I met him in 1981. And he said, if you're going to work for this particular family, Greg, and he knew the family, he said, you must inspect what you expect. And Matt, that has served me so well to follow up with people about a discussion or a conversation that we had about what are we going to do? What's the action plan? What are the action items? And then follow up to see if what we expected got done. If the team really got together and met and addressed the issue, or did they just kick the can down the road? Did they fix the gross profit margin? Did they fix the quality control issue? Did they repair the building? Small stuff. Did they keep the parking lot clean? Who's leaving all those Dixie cups out there in between the cars during the break? Just getting people to clean up the garbage. Inspect what you expect. I walk into a bank. We were traveling quite a bit in those days. And in the parking lot, I mean, I would pick up people were walking by this stuff every day that worked there. And I would pick up a couple handfuls of garbage and bring it in this reception. Do you have a wastebasket someplace? Is there a garbage can someplace in the bank? Well, Mr. Smith, what are you doing with all that garbage? Well, I said, everybody just walked by it. It was out in the parking lot blowing around by the front step. So I thought I'd pick it up. I'd go to the bank next time. No garbage. Place was clean as a hound's tooth. They even washed the windows. Excellent. Excellent. I love to pick your brain all day and all night, Greg, and I appreciate everything you've shared. And I'm looking at the clock. We've got some time to go. I'd love to uh, kind of transition to where we are now with your company. And can you talk a little bit about why you do it now and what excites you now about being in business and serving people? Well, I bring a lot of experiences and it's fun to just sit back and listen to other people's ideas about what to do next. My business is transition where and my partner, and this is in the book, basically manages the day-to-day of the business. So I'm there to support him and help him with his opportunities and the opportunities of our clients. I never cease to be amazed at how many opportunities there are to really do good. I mean, to really help someone and maybe even pay it forward a little bit. And it always comes back to me in tenfold. And I know, Matt, that's an overused expression, but I'm quite sincere when I say that. If I live my life with expectation, I will see the opportunities that are out there. And it might be opportunities to help someone else, maybe in business, it may be personal. I don't get involved in a lot of people's personal lives, but sometimes it just happens. And I mean, I've made plenty of mistakes and I've been blessed coming from a middle-class family as a white male. I mean, I have a lot of advantages, right? But I've also had a lot of challenges. And I think if I'm able to help people with their challenges, sometimes, Matt, it's just simply about changing their perception. Sometimes it's just about changing how they think about something. That's very rewarding for me. It's also very rewarding for me to spend time with my four grandkids because I'm back in Minnesota here on beautiful Lake Minnetonka in Minneapolis. And I've got two grandkids, 20 minutes one way and two grandkids, 20 minutes the other way. They're in the book, A-C-E-N-S, my four aces. Ava, Cooper, Everett, and Sebastian. And I get plenty of time with them when we're not we're not doing so much with the clients. And in a digital world, we don't have to travel like we used to, right? So we try and get to be digital savvy and, and do as much as we can with meetings like this. Yes. I saw in the uh, dedication in the front of the book, you talked about the ACEs. And you also mentioned something around a 50-year relationship in the front of the book. And I'm wondering if you could comment on that a little bit here, <laughs> please. Yeah, to the same woman, right? Not just 50 years That's married, right. but 50 years to the same person. <laughs> yeah, so Kate and I went to high school together. I played the slide trombone and she played the saxophone and I sat behind the saxophone section. So I'd give her a shot with my slide trombone every once in a while just to get her attention. I'd probably annoy her more than anything. 
when we graduated from high school, she didn't want anything to do with me, which was fine because I had to go to college and fail French and get that over with. But then after we got out of college, we reconnected and we knew each other quite well. And by then we were, I shouldn't say we were old friends, but we were friends and we knew each other and we knew each other's families and we knew each other's history. While we had dated other people, we kind of got together as friends and the friendship kind of grew and, and then uh, it, it was almost like it was destiny. So we looked up. How important is that relationship? Is Kate and your partner relationship to have a career that spans the length of yours with the success of yours and the challenges of yours? What important role did Kate play in that with you? Kate played the most important role, and I was really just a part of it. I know that for many executives, this gets to become catastrophic for the family, for the marital relationship. In a pre-digital world, I mean, I was on planes all the time. And for the several families, uh, three or four in particular that I worked for, they had private aviation. And, you know, I was moving coast to coast constantly. And my wife gave up a career in the medical industry to mother the two daughters, the two fantastic daughters that we have. We have, in some ways, maybe grown apart, but in many ways, we've grown together. So she respected where my goals were. I respected where her goals were in medicine early on, which was fantastic. And then later as we had children, that was her, it became her passion. I mean, it was my passion too, but we were trying to balance work life, income, leisure time, all the rest. I was very fortunate that it worked out. I mean, she's still my best friend. Awesome. You give inspiration to those of us who are in this place of building with young families and then getting through these stages. And it's just, great for you to talk about that. And I saw your smile. You talked about the four aces. You talked about Kate. There's something special about that. So thank you for letting us in there, Greg. I saw your your hand come up and I think I saw on your wrist. Was that a whoop or what was that strap you had on there? Is there some way that you're tracking your oh, exercise this. nowadays? Yeah. What is What are those things you have on your wrist? No, I don't wear a whoop, but I just got a device. I should plug my client, Soltec, S-O-L-T-E-C. He's got a really unique way of measuring sleep, but not only measuring sleep, but putting you to sleep and putting you into deep REM sleep and restoring your delta sleep. Check it out. But no, the, the band here I'm wearing is just basically a trail, a trail band, and it has phone numbers and IDs and my kids and my wife and how to reach them. I do quite a bit of bike link, bicycling, not motorcycle, but pedal bike. And I probably do 50, 60, 70 miles every couple of days. So I wear that in case I get smacked by a rear view mirror of a F-1500 by the head and I, I get knocked out. Someone will know who I am and what I'm, that red blobs spread out on the street. That's me with the band. Fantastic. Uh, always prepared. That was one of the things before. Always be prepared. So I appreciate that. And I have one last question before we go to the lightning round. We met because a dear friend introduced us. And can you talk a little bit about what Kasim has meant to you in your world, Greg? Yeah, he's just a really special person. I had just left Minneapolis and ultimately moved to another city and state to help a private family with a financial institution transition. And it was really a full-time responsibility in the C-suites of this company. But a very dear friend of mine, who I'd known for years and years earlier, older than me, a retired gentleman who lived in the same community, said that this young man was coming from 
Albuquerque to begin living with his father. His mother and father were separated and divorced, and, and he had lived in Albuquerque. And he was coming to this new community and maybe could use a little mentoring. I didn't really have the time for it, but we made the time for it. He came in and uh, my wife hadn't come to this town yet. We were still selling our property in Minneapolis. She's equestrian and horse, we had a horse property and they take a little bit of time to sell. So I had a lot of evenings to myself, which was either work or maybe get out and have dinner and spend a little leisure time away from the company, away from the business. And I had rented a house, so I was kind of transitioning. And so I said, sure, I'll meet this guy. And he showed up without going into the details. You couldn't have two more opposite people in a room. It was difficult. I think it was very difficult for him because he really didn't know why he was there. And he's sitting in a boardroom waiting for me for probably 45 minutes, a boardroom that seats about 40, 45 people. And he probably thought he was at General Motors or something waiting for somebody to come walking in the door. And I did. He was just a real interesting guy, extremely bright, lots of ideas. Boy, I thought if he could execute on just one of those ideas, he could become tremendously successful personally, in business, you know, however you want to evaluate it, just successful. But he, like everybody else starting out, had a lot of ideas about how this should be done and find his own way and not take necessarily the advice and counsel of other people. But I was there to give it. And if he asked for it, I did. He made some mistakes along the way, but ultimately ended up wanting, running and owning and managing probably one of the top Google ad agencies in the country. And we became very, very good, very good friends. We talk about it in the book. I mean, he just is a real special individual. And I was happy to have had the perception to see what I could see in him, which was an incredible amount of possibilities. A little nurturing, a little nudge, a little help, a little guidance. Even if I said the same thing that his father might say, it would be different coming from me. That's kind of how it all evolved. And the truth of it is, after mentoring him a number of years, he said, you know, if you could mentor others the way you've mentored me, he said, I really appreciate that. And others would too, but there's only so many hours in a day. So why don't you write a book? I never got around to it. So he actually gifted me the book, meaning he put together the a financial arrangement to have a whole team of people help me put this book together. And that's how the book evolved. And he wrote the foreword and it's, it's a very touching foreword if you've read it. Thank you for sharing that. And the book is No Locked Doors, and it's Master the Keys to Transform Problems and Possibilities. Greg, how can we pick up a copy? Where's the place we should go to get your book and find out more? Amazon has it, so you can get the digital version, the paperback version, the hardbounded version. I have to give Kazan the credit for this, but the book was a bestseller at Amazon 24 hours after it went live. And I think it's still a bestseller in three or four different categories, so... It's a collaboration, really, if you will, by not only myself and Cosm, who gifted me the book that I can gift it to others, but all the people in my life. It's exceptional. And it goes into depth about everything we're talking about today and many more things. And it's packed full of philosophy and learnings. And I'd encourage everyone to go check it out. I was telling Greg before we started recording that I am one third of the way in and I cannot put it down. It is excellent. So check it out. And Greg, is there a place we can find out more about you or connect with you if there's a social media or if we want to learn from you, any place else we can find you? Yeah, the easiest way is we have a page on LinkedIn. So that's where you'll find me, Gregory J. Smith, the company is Banco, B-A-N-C-O, Advisors, Scottsdale in Minneapolis. Fantastic. 
Well, Greg, we are near the end here, so I've got a couple last questions, then we'll wrap things up, my friend. So first, thank you for being with us today. This is the Eternal Optimist podcast, and when I say Eternal Optimist, what does that mean to you? I would say that what comes to my mind is choice. We're fortunate to be humans, not animals. We have choice. We can make decisions. We can change our perceptions. But at the end of the day, we have choices to make, and we have to own those choices. I think perception drives not only our view of the world, but our opportunities in the world, which are really limitless. Absolutely. That is a true eternal optimist. Gregory J. Smith, thank you for gifting your time. And just it's been amazing. Pleasure. Thank you, now. sir. It's, it's been a real pleasure. Great. Pleasure.